1: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If
0: country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if Atlases, Globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show.
3: Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who is in the UK. I'm actually in London. I'm 51.6 degrees north, which is 0.15 degrees east. Puts me, as I said, uh, in London. I'm actually in Highgate, next to Highgate Woods. And with me is the wonderful, a little bit snotty, a little bit congested. Claire Asprey, where are you today, Claire?
2: <laughs> well, that's normal, I'm in Bedfordshire, at 52.1 degrees north and 0.5 degrees east. But this is probably about the, the most proximate that we've ever been recording the podcast, isn't it? So, uh, and in fact, we did talk about being in the same place and you're probably be grateful that you're not because you'd have caught a cold by now.
3: That was more to do with the fact that, number one, I'm Cat City, but more importantly than that, My car is at the Mechanics. Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So if Peter's is your projection, you're in the right place.
2: This month, we're going really cartophilic with uh, Ian Ray from Red Mapper, who's a cartographer of the heavens.
3: And we have an audio postcard from our very own Nick Rowworth, at least part one, because woof it's a monster what what he did now folks uh, don't forget to review us on apple itunes because the more reviews we get the more people listen to the podcast
2: and again we're recording live on zoom with uh, some of our stalwart map corner listeners it's not an exclusive group if you want to join in you're most welcome so join the map corner facebook group or drop us a line uh, through twitter or email we can send you the link and uh, and then you can be part of this recording next time we do it
3: We record every first Saturday of the month at 6pm UK time, which is 1pm Eastern and 10am Pacific.
2: And so this month we're welcoming Ian Ray from Red Mapper to Map Corner. Uh, And Ian's like a real mapper, so I'm very excited about this. Um, So welcome Ian, thanks for joining us.
0: Hi, happy to be here.
2: And uh, do you want to tell us a bit about what got you into maps?
0: I mean, I've been doing... GIS and cartography for quite a few years now. Um, It's one of the things that I studied in college and is the basis for most of my career. My love of maps kind of, it went back long before that, though. My family was always, you know, they love traveling. They love nature. And we had a a designated shelf of atlases and National Geographic maps that I grew up with. So we were always playing with those, getting them out. They are core to how I understand the world. Um, maps don't just indicate, you know, where things are located, but they implicitly or explicitly tell you what it is in the world that's worth considering. And so, to me, it's it's a lens that that I enjoy looking through um, as I explore the world.
2: So, do you remember your first map that you drew as a child?
0: Oh, when I was uh, ten or eleven, I mapped all the squeaky places in the floor of my grandparents' house. <laughs> so I, I went around and, and drew little little X's all over my grandparents' property and uh, then gave that to them and they hung it on the refrigerator.
2: <laughs> right. I was assuming it was a bit like the Marauders map in Harry Potter, like it was for the for the purpose of doing misdeeds and not getting caught by stepping on a squeaky floorboard.
0: Right, exactly. That's very important information to have if you're 10 years old.
2: Yes. No, we had a the second step up on our staircase when I was a kid squeak. So you always knew when my mom was coming to check on us, so you could <laughs> dash back under the covers and turn the light off and pretend that you're asleep already. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a bit about Red Mapper and what you've been doing about publishing maps of oh, other planets.
0: So Red Mapper is an organization of loosely affiliated, you know, group of my friends and colleagues, uh, mostly GIS professional type type people. We decided a couple of years ago that the world needed better access to planetary mapping, essentially, Um, you know, maps of places that are not Earth. This is an idea that kicked off after I was able to participate in a, a mapping exercise where NASA was attempting to map 42 potential landing sites on Mars. And each site would then be mapped by a GIS professional. That map would then be shared with a geomorphologist or somebody at at NASA who would then do a more in-depth geomorphological study about that actual location to determine its feasibility for landing. So it was at that time that it became clear, or at least to me it was clear that this information, geographic information of Mars and other places like the Moon and Mercury needed to be accessible to more people than simply people who research research that kind of material as a part of their career. So that was kind of the beginning of RedMapper. Um, we kicked off with a, a paper atlas that we published and then created mapping portals on a website for Mars, Mercury, and the Moon. That is what RedMapper does.
2: Uh, what did it take to make a good landing site on Mars?
0: A number of things, uh, some of which is beyond me. I'm, I just make maps. Um, they <laughs> Uh, you know, you need a, a, a level, topographically stable uh, site, usually the bottom of a valley or a crater. If you're sending people there, if it's a manned mission, you need to have access to uh, resources. So whether that's, you know, moisture in the soil, water, ice, building materials, different types of soil, you know, access to the sky so that you, you know, you're not in a canyon hidden behind a like a, a canyon face that blocks 30% of your sky visibility. So you, you know struggle to communicate with orbiting satellites and whatnot. So there's a lot of things to consider. I think they ended up narrowing it down to two or three out of the 42 in total.
2: Wow.
3: I, I need to take you back ju- just a little bit because sure. you've, you have this wonderful atlas uh, of Mars, but you, you did a Kickstarter, didn't you? yeah yeah we did a kickstarter so so tell us the reason why you had to do the kickstarter and you were rather successful as well
0: yeah um you know we we weren't doing this kind of work it takes time and it takes resources you know it it takes hundreds and hundreds of hours of of time to put stuff together um, whether it's a portal or a hard atlas and we were trying to figure out a, a means of Um, you know, letting people know what we're doing, um, involving those people who wanted to participate, um, which would be the backers on Kickstarter, and then provide some level of funding that could, um, you know, help support the software um, and, of course, the publishing costs um, uh, to get to that point. It also gave us uh, an audience who could then disseminate the website information and the portal information to other people that they feel would be interested in it. So that was our intention behind Kickstarter. There are, of course, other ways of doing that. Um, You know, you can go through a publishing company, you can go through Amazon, you can just have a website. Um, we, We felt Kickstarter was the optimal way to get started with this.
3: Can you explain to us all the sources that you have um, at your disposal to be able to uh, to create an accurate representation of of Mars?
0: So, of course, it all goes back to um, where do you where do you get the geographic data? Fortunately, um, a lot of data has been collected over the last forty years, um, going back to the Viking missions of the late seventies. This data collected by NASA, primarily, every five or six years, there's a new new mission, Um, whether it's collecting satellite imagery, or creating an elevation data set. So you can actually determine the elevation of each, you know, maybe 200 meter by 200 meter square um, of the planet. These data sets are publicly available, anyone in the world can download them online. They are rather large, they're rather cumbersome, um, many hundreds of gigabytes in in some cases, which makes sense because these are global data sets, right? It's imagery, it's an elevation model, not just for one little piece of a planet, but for the whole thing. So we collect that data from NASA, uh, the USGS, we we tailor it down to how we want to visualize it cartographically on the map. And you can use these primary data sets to create secondary data sets, such as contour lines. You can take like the digital elevation model, run a geostatistical analysis, which will kick out a new data set of just contour lines that you then overlay on top of the imagery. And that'll make the imagery just kind of pop at you.
3: Have we mapped, in effect, all of Mars in high detail, are there some bits where a bit like ah, so you've you know, so you only had like I don't know, maybe two data sources opposed to the fifteen? Because I can imagine that wherever the Viking probes landed, you know, there's going to be great mapping of that. And yes, there've been numerous um, man-made objects which have flown to Mars and whatever. But mm-hmm. there must be some bits of Mars which you know we're licking our finger, sticking our finger up in the air, and going, oh, don't
0: quite, don't quite have enough data there. Maybe
2: oh. dragons.
0: Yeah, almost all of Mars is has been captured at about a two hundred meter resolution, which on Earth that's that's terrible resolution. But for Mars, in my opinion, that's fantastic. Um, Anything larger than two hundred meters, you can see um, in the imagery, Um, which which of course means any crater, um, any canyon, any mountain, any geographic feature you can see quite clearly. I would say the the poorest Captured areas of Mars are the poles. I'm not sure why. If you if you're trying to like create a good map of like the North Pole, for example, you, there are a few areas where there's artifacts in the imagery where it's just it's just not crystal clear. But that's you know you're talking five percent of the of the whole planet surface that is that way.
2: Wow.
3: Do, do you feel like a a modern day intrepid mapper? Back in the, you know, the 14th, 15th century, you know, we sent men out in, in boats uh, to go, go and map the world and whatever. And they got their sextons out and, and, and did weird and wonderful things with them. And and that's the image that we have of the world. But now you can do it from the Pacific Northwest and you can, uh, you know, map Mars. So do you feel like you're in, a, in the tradition of, I don't know, uh, Captain Cook or Ferdinand Magellan?
0: I, no, unfortunately, I, I I think that's both the um, kind of the privilege and the downfall of, of living in 2021 is you don't have to physically go to a place to explore it, but then also you don't get to go to the physical place to explore it. it on one hand, it is it is neat to be able to, to explore from my living room. I mean, that's unbelievable. We just, just, I mean, it was just 10, 15 years ago, a person couldn't do that. But uh, yeah, I still I still hope someday to maybe in my old age, I'll make it to to Mars or or somewhere cool. For the time being, I have to have to be satisfied with living room exploration. Well, if I was. I can't believe NASA
2: haven't got you on a mission already. Like, you know, they lined you up to be the cartographer on something.
3: (laughs) Or at least, you know, get cozy with Elon Musk. You know, you're going to (laughs) be halfway there, aren't
0: you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we all play a role and cross pollinate each other's endeavors.
2: So, so the, obviously, there's a demand for people to sit at home and then watch Mars or look at Mars in, in uh, all the Moon or places other like uh, in, that. They'll never go. What's the demand been like for the the stuff that you're doing at Redmapper? Clearly, there's enough that it's worth doing. And you know, what kind of things are people doing? though? who's attracted to that, and what's the what's the market like? I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, so like I mentioned earlier, we we really wanted to extend the conversation beyond just people who study this for a living. We want it to be a societal conversation, not conversation of academics and researchers and billionaires with spaceships. Like it needs to be something that we're all a part of. The goal was to give everyone a tool to do that on their own. Most of the people that I've spoken with who are using the portals or who have acquired one of the atlases that's exactly who they are their majority of them are um you know just people i would be friends with people i would know um who are more than happy to get the same glimpse of those landscapes that somebody who works at a high level at nasa gets and a lot of people are acquiring these atlases or sharing these portals with their children and their grandchildren, which in my opinion, that's the generation that really matters when it comes to setting foot on these places. But in my opinion, there needs to be um, uh, a sufficient amount of inspiration and motivation for today's young people. Because um, it, it'll just be 10 years from now, and those young people are in college choosing what they're going to what they're going to study um, and how they want to vote and um, spend their tax dollars, you know what what it is they want to prioritize in their life. and i'm I'm hoping that more people prioritize space exploration.
2: so that's a really important element for you around the accessibility and the cartographic decisions that you're making to to make it a very accessible. look, I mean it's great. you you sort of skim along and look like you're looking at a place. So, how do you how do you make decisions about how you present that data um, so that it's as accessible as possible?
0: So to make things accessible, it needs to be visually appealing. It needs to you know you want data is great, but data is not very inspiring. Even a even quick cartography is not very inspiring. Our, our goals for at least the the moon and Mars was to create maps that have a mixture of, um, artificial color with the natural color of the landscape so that you can accentuate so that you can get an an accurate visual of what that, you know, what that landscape looks like as far as color and topography, but modify it to an extent that maybe a little bit of artificial color will, will pop out those landscapes a little more so that they're, I guess, just visually appealing, Um, it did feel to, yeah. when I looked at it.
3: You, I literally felt that I could feel it. You know, it, it in terms of the detail and uh, and the resolution, and it is to do with the colours and the relief which you use. But it but it feels incredibly tactile. They are truly beautiful. Yeah, you, know, you do get a real sense of the of the Martian surface. Where would you like to map next?
0: Uh, we're we're looking at Venus, and we've had some interest. Uh, from some of our backers um, in a an atlas and a portal of earth without the oceans. it would be the planet Earth um, but in the likeness of the other planets because the other planets don't have oceans, right? Mm-hmm. So like on earth, the ocean is just a flat surface. it's it's hard to visualize what's underneath it. Um, it's kind of this blank space that people ignore um, when you're when they're looking at a portal or an atlas. so those are those are our next two. Uh,
3: but I, I'm, I'm confused because I remember my schoolboy astronomy, Venus is covered with a dense, thick atmosphere, lots of cloud. And as mm-hmm. soon as we put probes into it, you know, they kind of vaporize within minutes <laughs> and whatever. So we, we can just about take snapshots of the component
0: gases. But mm-hmm.
3: how are you going to map the surface?
0: Uh, so fortunately, um, that the surface has been captured um, using a, a laser altimeter that orbits um, and it's able to see through the atmosphere and capture the elevation of the surface. So it's a yeah.
3: good job. I qualified uh, my question by saying, my schoolboy astronomy. No.
2: <laughs> You're ahead of me, Royfield. this is all make. I just don't, I cannot begin to comprehend how this even works. Like, yeah. I don't know how we get this data. It's phenomenal. It's like magic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of this data has come in the last um, five, 10, 15 years, and um, which, of course, is long after I was done with school and presumably most of you as well. Um, so it's, it's a different world now than it was 20 years ago, 30 years.
3: Uh, we need to uh, go on to another world indeed, which is the world of Bookham. It's time for our audio postcard. Each month, one of our one of the great and the good of, of Matt Corner wins the quiz, which means that they uh, tell us about somewhere that they love. This month it was Nick Rowworth.
1: At age seven, I moved to Bookham in the Surrey Stockbroker Belt. And this is where I consider my home. Bookham is at the center of Surrey, and there's a solitary tree in a field to the north of the village, which is meant to mark the centre. How true this is, I don't know, but it must annoy the farmer, as it's got a tree preservation order on, and he can't knock it down. Great Bookham and Little Bookham to the west are both villages built on the spring line, between the chalk of the North Downs and the London Clay. This has led to all the parishes being long and thin. There's three adjacent villages, which sound like a policeman's jobs. They're Cobham, Fetcham, and Bookham. And quite often, some wags add to the bottom of the road signs pointed to Buckham the word Dano. It's mentioned in the Doomsday Book as Buckham, which means village in the beech trees. And there are a lot of trees around, especially on Buckham Common to the north of the village, which is now managed by the National Trust. The common also, as well as walks, has ponds and the associated wildlife, butterflies, and also the very rare Jack toad breeds there. The soil to the north of the village is thin, and digging down a few inches, you soon reach the chalk. In the north, the soil is a heavy clay, and has flints, which continually make their way to the surface. These have been used as building materials over the years, to face both walls and also buildings. This includes, like many other churches in Surrey, the Parish Church of St Nicholas, which unlike my name, is not spelt with an H. This is at the crossroads at the centre of the village. Its parts taken back to before the Norman Conquest. It was originally a monastery which now forms a nave. And this had high windows so the monks wouldn't be distracted from their contemplations and prayers. These windows can still be seen. One of the richer families in Bookham, the Downies, decided to add an aisle to one side of the nave. Not to be outdone, the other large family, the Slyfields, had to add an even grander aisle to the other side. The church has many monuments to them and also brasses which people can come around to make rubbings of. In fact one of these was actually stolen while I lived in Bookham but the thief, either not being able to get rid of it or finding it wasn't worth as much as they thought just left it back in the porch so it was reattached to the church this time securing it so it couldn't be stolen again. If you visit the church during Lent, you'll see a nice altar cloth made by my mum. It's purple and red and contains all the symbols of the Passion story. It's got the spear, the sponge, the nails, the crown of thorns, and on the lectern there's the cockerel that crows three times, Peter. She also made the raiments for the priests that go with this and at her memorial service, I got special permission so we could have this on and everyone could see it. She added to this later on by making one for celebration services, which is all in gold. To the south of the village is Poles and Lacey, a large manor house where the Queen Mother spent the first part of her honeymoon. On her 80th birthday, as part of the celebrations, she came back to visit. The railway came to Bookham in 1885, built by the London and South Western Railway on the lane line between Waterloo and Guildford. This isn't in the centre of the village, but lies about a mile and a half away, as originally the local landowners didn't want it to be near the village and spoil it. It was in open country until the 50s and 60s when there was a great expansion in the village, mainly due to the commuters to London that moved there. They've tried to close the station on many occasions, but the brats—that's the Bookham Residents Association travel section—have always managed to stop them. There you go, uh, good people. That's that's part
3: one. Because as I said, our Nick uh, did a did a rather epic, uh, magisterial audio postcard of his home village of Bookham in Surrey. So part two will be next month. Well done, Mr. Rowworth. He's feeling pretty proud. I like the little bit about your mum. That's unmute great. yourself, unmute yourself,
1: Nick. Yeah, brought a tear to my eye seeing all that, Royfield.
3: Ah, <laughs> how long as as the the church had your mother's cloth, which she made for the altar?
1: Well, uh, um, she made it for when my grandfather died. So, um, I think she made the first one in the seventies. Must be in the seventies, sometime. V- Rector at the time, he want he always wanted one, and so she made it. And it was designed by one of one of a friend's husband who was actually an artist and then they put it together so her and a friend Uh and she gave it in in remembrance of my grandfather uh who who never visited book (laughs) book and but
3: well it was it was great for you to send in in those two pictures and and to include them and i'm hopefully lined it up just at the right place when you're talk, talking about your mother and, and the things you've done for the church. And, uh, I know your faith is incredibly important to you, so it's only right and proper that, you know, you spent so much time in this place, in your village and, and it was kind of centerpiece of, um, of your audio postcards. So thank you for that, Mr. Rowworth. and part two n- next month. So now good people, uh, it's the time for you to speak to an interplanetary mapper. Things don't get more exciting for us map nerds than that. Here is somebody that uh, from planet Earth is actually mapping the stars. So if you've got a question or two, Ian Ray, uh, now is the time Ken McDonald, Sarah Spilsbury, uh, Nick Roworth, Ronald Cohn uh, or Sergio to ask. Because it's not every day you get to ask somebody who in effect has been to Mars. So so there you go. Ian, you, you, you talked about... First, mapping out your grandparents' house and all the squeaky places, and, I, and I'm presuming you just had pencil and paper for that. But, um, explain to us the world of kind of GIS in layman's terms. I can barely get my head around the fact that, um, Captain Cook, Ferdinand Magellan, you know, used sextons uh, to, to map the world, but. Kind of tell us what tools you actually use, but in layman's terms, so we kind of understand it. Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. The GIS is stands for Geographic Information Systems. And it is the, the best way to think about GIS for someone who's unfamiliar with it is Google Maps. Google Maps is a GIS. Um, it's, a, it's a digital representation of the world in map form um, that incorporates layers that you can turn on and off um, to customize your visual experience with with the the landscape Um, that is in essence what gis is it of course can go in a number of different directions from there Um, you can perform geoanalysis to identify you can ask questions of it because it's an information system you can say show me the nearest starbucks to my hotel and then it will give you that result. You can say, show me the best landing zones on Mars that are near these resource requirements that we have. And it will highlight those particular places on the planet. So at a basic level, it's a map that you can turn different layers on and off to customize what you want to see. In a deeper sense, you can ask fairly complex questions, get answers back which then help you in your research gotcha
3: uh first up we have a question all the way from colombia sergio well actually i'm in italy <laughs> right now you're in where italy in, in italy in turin oh. oh
0: yeah i moved in <laughs> Mi piace well, uh, well i have two two questions the first one is uh for elevation matters how did you choose the zero, like the sea level for mm-hmm. a planet? Because, well, in Earth, we have, like, the sea
2: to choose yeah. that. In in other
0: uh, planets <laughs> or in the moon, how did you choose that? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question, one that not a lot of people think about. Um, you know, even on Earth, uh, sea level isn't static. So, you know, you have, you have the tides and you have, like, mean high tide and the high high tide and the, on other planets, a certain level will be designated. So like on Mars, there's a atmospheric pressure is that represents the zero. Um, and then everything is measured above and below that I don't recall what that atmospheric pressure is. But that represents the zero on Mars. If you were to take the moon and create a perfect sphere out of it, because a planet isn't the sphere, right? It, it's, it's lumpy. It's got mountains and valleys. Um, that sphere represent the surface of that sphere represents zero and then everything. So mountains that are above that, that edge or below that edge are counted above or below. So it's, it's not a very good e- explanation. No, oh, it is. <laughs> is it? Okay. Yeah, it's... Well, I, I, even I
2: understood that one.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 different everywhere because the circumstances are different everywhere. Thank goodness we have sea level on Earth because that really makes it simple for us. But it's a little more complex on other places. Yeah, and speaking about zeros, my second question is like, well, latitude zero is easy to to define, but about longitude zero... Because we're here in Earth, we have the convention of Greenwich. But in other planets, what point of the planet did you choose for the zero? Uh, so Mars, the zero is on, there's a crater called Aerie. And I don't know what the reasoning was, but zero longitude goes right through the center of that crater. And then everything is counted from that location. I don't recall why they decided on that.
3: Isn't, is that maybe where the
0: first uh, viking probe landed um i don't i don't think it is and i'll have to do some more research into that yeah i'm really not sure it'd
2: be great to be the person in the room where they go right you just you you point somewhere and pick somewhere and then that'll be it <laughs> <The
0: power>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that'd be well, great which
2: is kind of what greenwich was to be fair i mean it's just you know it's just a random point to say this is zero
3: well there's a l- whole load of imperial hubris that went on there right? and lobbying <laughs> well, by, right. by 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 the brits you know and actually it was us lobbying the americans then swung it away from paris but but mm. it is a fascinating story uh, right ken mcdonald representing the, uh, the 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 land of uncle sam and apple pie ask you question sir yes
0: yeah, so i'm wondering what about some of the uh, moons of jupiter or saturn or perhaps one of the larger asteroids Have, have any of them been surveyed sufficiently that you could do something like this? Mapping some of those places is like a grand fantasy of mine. I, but we don't have um, good data for those locations. Um, we do have, you know, some some photographs, some imagery, depending on the moon and the and the probe that was sent out. Um, but we don't have, you know, like a global data set or like an elevation data set for those places. I i in full support of capturing that data at some point in the future. I think that would be amazing. Yeah, those those are off into the future.
3: All right, uh, Nick Rowworth, you're going to be uh, the last person to ask a question here, sir. I know it's going to be a good one. Yours ask good
1: questions, aren't Nick? <laughs> I was just going to ask that you you said all the data. Do, have they got sat- satellites going around these planets all the time, like we've got Landsat? Have they? Have they got ones going around telling about data all the time, so you can update and then looking for different things? You know, so you can look in different spectrums, maybe, or radar, whatever. Yeah. To to find out different things. And I take it they're interested in the resources, what might be under the surface as well. There's a couple
0: that are going around Mars right now. They seem to have uh, like an end of shelf life, and then they typically will just (laughs) crash them into the planet. I'm not sure why why there isn't a mission that's more like, you know, Landsat that's just up in the air indefinitely you know capturing a long-term stream of data yeah as far as i know there there are not any unfortunately i think that would be fantastic maybe it's a cost maybe it's a logistical thing
3: ronald has decided to come in he didn't want uh nick to be uh the person bringing up the rear that'd be honor of the last question ronald decided to rip that away from him ronald uh, why don't you ask your question sir Thank you. Uh, So, quick question, and this is maybe a different question. So, I've always been trying to compare the mapping of other planets, Mars and Jupiter, to what's going on with the uh, recent eruption of the volcano in the Canary Islands in the island of La Palma. And I'm so fascinated by the uh, topography and the orography, uh, and I try to compare that with other planets. So, my question to you is, do you also do the same? Um, because, for example, in the 13 days since the eruption, the island has already grown by 27 hectares and the depth of 30 meters, and it's fascinating. I can't stop watching that. So I wanted to take your opinion.
0: Mm, yeah, I, I mean, I know there's there's a lot of uh, volcanic activity on these other worlds, especially Mars. There's a lot. Um, they, I don't know. I, I don't think the quality of the the imagery that we capture is able to capture that kind of resolution. It's, it's fairly coarse resolution, um, compared to, you know, what we're able to collect here on earth. Um, so it's, it's hard to monitor that in real time, um, or, or even over long periods of time. Um, I think going forward, we'll have, uh, eventually have, um, higher quality imagery, especially, uh, not just higher quality, but, as Nick was saying, you know, over longer periods of time down the road. But as as of right now, that's not really it's not really feasible to to do that kind of comparison, unfortunately.
2: That's such an interesting questions. I, I'm always very humbled, Royfield, by the fact that our very intelligent listeners ask really smart questions. <laughs>
3: Much better questions than you and I could actually muster. Uh, yeah well, th- thanks for saving us everyone <laughs> now uh good people it's time for us to go on to the quiz and we know that the quiz is highly sought after at least the accolade for winning the quiz is highly sought after because... strap
2: in folks it's fiendish this month i'm sorry
3: yes because if you win the quiz you get the uh the honor of doing uh the uh, audio postcard next month well cool we didn't it too much time because next month we have part two of Nick Rowworth and, and Bookham. Right. Question number one, the moon. Which of these is not a phase of the moon? A. Waxing gibbous and waning gibbous. Sorry. B. Waxing quarter. C. full. Which of these is not a phase of the moon? Waning gibbous. B. Waxing quarter. C. the moon after 55 usa or ussr moon missions in the 60s and 21 in the 70s how many lunar missions were launched in the 1980s a 34 b 17 c zero the moon after 55 usa or ussr moon missions in the 1960s and 20 in the 1970s how many lunar missions were launched in the 1980s is it a 34 b 17 or c 0 naming space how has the international astronomical union responded to the increasing rate of discovery of satellites of jupiter and saturn a public votes for naming new discoveries b extend Extending from Greco-Roman mythology to other mythologies to pick names. Or C. Use of numbers only to name satellites. Right. Let's hear that one again. Naming space. How has the International Astronomical Union responded to the increasing rate of discovery of satellites of Jupiter and Saturn? A. Do we have public votes for naming new discoveries? B. Have they extend Have they extended from Greco-Roman mythology to other mythologies to pick their names? Is there a satellite called Thor? Or C. Use of numbers only to name satellites. Question number four. Mars. Where about on Mars is the Valley de Miranius? Am I pronouncing that halfway correctly?
0: Vallis Miranius.
3: The largest canyon in the solar system is it in a the northern hemisphere b the equator or c the southern pole here we go you and i uh, a double act on this one uh ian right so you jump <laughs> in where about on mars is the Valles marineris the largest canyon in the solar system is it a in the northern hemisphere b at the equator or c at the southern pole cartography which language does the word map originate from is it a greek b indian or c latin cartography what language does the word map originate from a greek b indian or c latin back to mars the red planet according to the claire uingu how's that for a pronunciation ian
0: it sounds right uingu Yeah.
3: All right. According to the Uingu people people's map of Mars, there are zero places named after a Royfield. But (laughs) how many are named after a Claire? Is it A five, B ten, or C fifteen? According to the Uingu people's map of Mars, there are zero places named after a Royfield. That's shocking. Who would Who would have thought that? right. But how many were named after a Claire? A five, B 10 or C 15. Question number seven, Mercury. Craters on Mercury are named after artists, composers and writers. Which of these do not have a crater named after them? A Frida Kahlo, B John Lennon or C Sophocles. So we're on Mercury. Craters on Mercury are named after artists, composers, or writers. Things you learn on this podcast. Well done, Claire. All right? Which of these don't have a crater named after them? A. Frida Kahlo. B. John Lennon. C. Sophocles. And the last question: We're still on Mercury. How many spacecraft have visited Mercury to provide photos to help map? The planet is it a2 b3 or c4 how many spacecraft have visited mercury to provide photos which help to map the planet is it a2 b3 or c4 those are your not very easy questions folks those are pretty fiendish. ian i'm guessing you can get all of those though
0: I'm not sure about one or two of the questions, the other
3: ones. Now is the time, folks, uh, that uh, we uh, put aside just for now questions of the quiz and we go on to Claire's social media roundup.
2: All right. So we now have, as of today, 398 members of the Facebook group. So we're nearly at 400. We've been skimming 400 for a while. So, you know, just tell a friend. Uh, We'll see if we can get it over 400 next time round. We've had a few really um, interesting maps uh, on the Facebook page in the last month. One that I particularly enjoyed and it it did stimulate some conversation, which was um, from Michelle Morrison, which is around UK place names and how different, uh, different ages of people in the UK have named things the same thing so that we end up with places that are effectively translated as hill, 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 hill. And whether the extent to which that is actually an urban myth or that, that I think there's some truth in some of that. I think it might've been exaggerated. Um, Commerce Daily posted the perennial favorite, which is how to find Kentucky on the US map by imagining a guy in a chef's hat holding some Kentucky fried chicken. Uh, it's the only way I know how to do it now. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'm not an expert, but uh, that's, if it wasn't for that map, I would never have the faintest opportunity to know where Kentucky is. Um, one that I really like that Ronald uh cohn posted was uh one of these maps to say across Europe which countries mainly used butter and which ones used olive oil. Again, this is one of these I'm never quite sure what the data source is, but um you know there are there are similar equivalents, aren't there, between the sort of potatoes and tomatoes and beer and wine to, to illustrate some of the cultural differences between northern europe and southern europe um, but i think the butter versus olive oil map is quite an interesting one uh although in these days i think olive oil is a fairly ubiquitous thing across the whole of europe so um i don't know i could be wrong and uh, one that royfield posted which i really liked was um the maps of cycle paths in europe which just goes to show how much better served you would be across the Netherlands and Belgium and, and places like that although to be fair they're flatter I'll give you that um in terms of getting around on a bicycle but it is absolutely true and surprisingly com- comparatively well in the UK uh according to that map compared to some other parts so um we all want to encourage a little bit of um kind of uh, eco-travel and uh, switching to greener alternatives like cycling. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a place to start, especially right now, because as we record, can't get petrol in the UK <laughs> very easily. Um, so it's a very good time to start uh, thinking about alternative forms of transport. Um, uh, over on Twitter, I had some uh, great uh, retweet things that people were doing. So like uh, at the yellow, the yellow boob, no, the gallow boob, sorry. Reposted something, which is a guy who does those GPS sort of cycling. They do it with cycling. We see them for joggers and cyclists. Uh, The Tyrannosaurus Rex that someone had mapped uh, by cycling on a GPS, uh, like Strava sort of thing, was particularly impressive, I thought. And another food-related map, uh, which I retweeted from at Marine Maps, was um, a heat map showing the distance to the nearest Nando's in the UK, and questioning whether or not this was a kind of um, an alternative way of designating rural and urban areas, like the, the the closer you are to a Nando's, the more urban the area is likely to be. Um, but what was really surprising to me was quite how many Nando's there must be, because like pretty much, you no, know, they were they were all over. <laughs> So um, uh, when they're that ubiquitous, maybe there isn't such a benefit in understanding which areas are rural because pretty much everywhere seems to be near a Nando's as far as I could tell from that. So, yeah, there's some good stuff to see. Uh, hashtag Map Corner on Twitter or in the Facebook group, uh, you'll see the, the, the people putting posts up and the, and the chat that goes through them. And, um, yeah, come and join us.
3: Smashing. Right now, Claire, um, this is the time of the show where my brain's gone to mush. What comes next? Do do we do um, uh, quiz answers or do you do map fact? Are, I'll do are, are quiz
2: answers and then I'll do my map fact.
3: All right, then great. All right, smashing. Here we go. And in typical me fashion, what I don't have actually is the answers. Uh, Fortunately, so... I
2: have them in front of me. Wait,
3: here we go. <laughs> I
2: anticipated not... this. We are it's a tradition.
3: double act after all. So question number one, the moon. Which of these is not a phase of the moon? Is it A, waning gibbous, B, waxing quarter, or C, full? Uh, Ian, the answer is? It is B. You're right. Well done, sir. Thank you. Question number two. The moon, after 55 USA or USSR moon missions in the 60s and 21 in the 1970s, how many lunar missions were launched in the 1980s? I think I know the answer to this, but Ian, what do you
0: I'm going to it's going to be zero.
3: Absolutely. Zero, isn't it, Claire?
2: Yeah. It is zero, yeah. Is zero. We yes. clearly just lost interest or decided to go somewhere else instead. Or, you know, <laughs> just... Get greedy and wear shoulder pads or whatever it was. You doing, right?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it. Watching Dallas was just too, too engrossing in the 80s. Uh, naming space. How has the International Astronomical Union responded to the increasing rate of discovery of satellites of Jupiter and Saturn? Uh, is it A, public votes for naming new discoveries, B, extend uh, extending from Greco-Roman mythology to other mythologies to pick names, or C, the use of numbers only to name satellites? Mr. Ray, do you know the answer to this?
0: You know, I I know the IAU is not in favor of A, and between B and C, I'm not completely sure. I know that they've used letters to name satellites i'm not aware of numbers so i'm going to go with b
2: you are right so they are extending to to norse mythology irish mythology and something else i think they're just they're working their way around additional mythologies yeah Uh, public votes are a very bad idea because you'd have satellite make satellite face wouldn't you exactly
3: exactly (laughs) so let us go on all right um mars where about on Mars is the Valle de Marianas the largest canyon in the solar system? Is it A, in the Northern Hemisphere, B, the equator, or C, at the Southern Pole? And the answer is, if you don't know this,
0: you need it to is, hang your head long... in shame. <laughs> it's along the equator.
2: It's huge. Like, really, yeah. really huge. Like... Five times bigger than the Grand Canyon,
0: or something like that. Or, yeah. Yes, it, you know, is.
3: Claire. You, I haven't actually confirmed that it is on the equator, though, Claire. Can you confirm? It is. It is? Yes. Okay. Good. It good. is on the equator. Hey, few. Few. All right. Great. Cartography. What language does the word map originate from? Is it a Greek, b Indian, or c Latin? Mister Ray, any ideas? I'm going to say Latin. Mm. It's either Correct. Latin or Greek, isn't it? So yeah. it okay. is Latin. Yeah. All right. Question number 6 according to the Uingu people's map of Mars there are zero places named after a Rothfield <laughs> but how many are named after a Claire a5 b10 or c15 what do you reckon mr
0: ray i i really can't know this one so i'm i'm just going to go right in the middle i'm going to say b10 it's
2: actually c15 and can i just 15. recommend the Ewingu people's map of Mars because people just nominated places like naming things on Mars so people have named it after all sorts of random stuff but obviously there's a lot of names in there um, but like no Royfields I'm afraid Royfield. so you have to get yourself on and nominate yourself <laughs> to be named, like, name something after, Mar- after yourself on Mars like hmm. it seems quite an open access thing so you know <laughs> you can have a crater or something named after you
3: I'd be very apt very apt. Uh, right, Mercury craters on Mercury are named after artists, composers, and writers. Which of these don't have a crater named after them? Frida Kahlo, John Lennon, or Sophocles? Any idea, Mister Ray?
0: Um, I I'm gonna I'm just gonna guess that there's definitely a Sophocles. Um, I know there's a Lennon crater. I don't know about a John Lennon crater. I'm gonna say Frida. Eight.
2: You are correct. Frida Kahlo okay. does not have a um, crater named after her, but uh, yeah, that's another interesting way to spend five minutes of your time is reading the Wikipedia page of all the names of the <laughs> craters of Mercury because <laughs> it's a real panoply of like every like literally John Lennon to Beethoven, Sophocles to I don't know. Also, I mean, just random artists, writers, yeah, composers from
3: can, across can, time. Can, can we call sexism here?
2: Yes, possibly. Although there are there are some women, but like, as you might expect, um, nowhere near as many as probably deserve it.
3: Right. And the last question is uh, Mercury. We're still on Mercury. How many spacecraft have visited Mercury to provide photos which help to map the planet? I think I know the answer for this, but I'm not 100 percent sure. What do you reckon, Mr. Ray?
0: Um, I think it's three, but I think there's one in route right now, I think. Huh.
3: There's a bit so, of a knowing look on your face there, Claire Asprey. What's the answer?
2: Well, I had two um, from what I was looking at when I did the quiz. But I'm willing to bet that Ian's probably got better information than <laughs> I'm randomly looking up on the well, internet, so, like... You know, we, but, we can take you on that one.
0: <laughs> I, I know there's, I know there's one that has landed on the surface or crashed into the surface, Um and then I'm un- unsure of how many have just flown by. You know, like went there, captured imagery, and then just kept going.
2: Hmm. Just,
3: I thought it
0: was two, but I, but I'm
3: not. I don't have Wikipedia at my disposal right okay. now. So, um being the adjudicator, right? You're the guest of honor, so we will accept. Two or three is the answer. Okay. (laughs) All right. There we go. Right then, good people. Who? Who? I'm going to go on to uh, gallery view so I can see all of your wonderful faces and even Jennifer, who's uh, camera shy. Uh, Now, who got all eight correct? Okay.
2: I mean, they would be a genius because they were hard questions. Or they would be very lucky guesses.
3: Who got seven correct? Well done, Ian. <laughs> now, apart from our guest of honor who mapped half of these planets, right? <laughs> who got six correct?
2: Well done, Ronald. Ronald.
3: <clears throat> Wowzer. Now, how many of those were educated guesses? How many of those were stabs in the dark?
0: I think two were educated guesses. Mm -hmm. I think the uh, the Claire question, I guess that that one, because maybe that's why
3: uh, Claire had put it in to have to go with the biggest number. Hey, why not? (laughs) Well, it's about
2: psychology as well as knowledge.
3: (laughs) Well done, sir. Well, you know what you win? The honor of filling four minutes of our time in a in a forthcoming episode. Fantastic. So um, you might want to have a think, but you you, you can rest on your laurels until uh, the month after for this month, because we still have part two of Nick uh, and Bookham. Right then, Claire. So um, it's uh, it's almost time for us to fold up our maps, but before we do that, um, what you got for us?
2: Okay. So I thought in in line with the uh, conversation we've had this month about um, you know intergalactic mapping and um, spacecraft, Um, and we've talked a bit about it today, really, uh, that this week uh, on the 27th of September, the Landsat 9 launched, um, which is going to send loads of uh, satellite information back about the the Earth and improve our mapping of the Earth, if not other planets, um, which was uh, lighting up all of my map related Twitter feed this week. Uh, Lots of people very excited about that. Um, And uh, I can recommend there's a sort of fun with Landsat website uh, that NASA run where you can download what they describe as a simple model uh, of the satellite that you can make at home. And when, when they say simple, what they mean is there are 31 very complicated steps in making this model. You have to print it on the right kind of card to start with. Um, and it looks incredibly fiddly. But if you want to have a go, you can build your own Landsat satellite, uh, including all the solar array and, and, and models of all the different bits of equipment and learn all about it. Uh, and you can get that on, if you Google Landsat 9 and uh, go to the NASA page, you can uh, you can download uh, a fun at home, uh, build your own Landsat 9. Um, so that's my map fact of the month.
3: Well, how does it get into space?
2: On a rocket, I guess.
3: Or can you build your own rocket? You must know this
2: stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You know how we said we were like enthusiastic amateurs? That's very, very evident to this one.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There you go, folks. Uh, That has been uh, your map corner uh, this month. Uh, But just before we utterly say goodbye to everybody, uh, Ian Ray, um, you need to tell us about the great publications that you've got um, out there and where people can find them.
0: Yeah, so we've published uh, Mars Atlas um, and then uh, three free-to-access uh, portals that let users explore Mars, the Moon, and Mercury at redmapper.com, and we are getting ready to publish three new atlases, the Mars Atlas second edition, Moon Atlas, and Mercury Atlas, and those will be available next year.
3: Fantastic. There you go, folks. Uh, you know what to get me for Christmas now so uh, <laughs> there you go Claire uh, is it time for us to fold up our maps there you go folks that's us take care look after yourselves toodle bit goodbye that's map corner thanks everybody time for us thanks to, to fold up our maps
1: oh thanks Let's
2: fold up our maps
1: yep. thanks guys